Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing... And I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Here's a question before us this morning. Do we know too much about those around us? Maybe it's a coworker who overshares. Maybe it's just someone in line at the grocery store who divulges their entire romantic history between the beeps of the checkout gun. Etiquette, as it was once known, and politesse, as the high-minded might have called it, has broken down. And there's a lot to celebrate in the explosion of conversational norms that kept people's truth from being brought into everyday conversation. But, as an Atlantic essay notes, if society-wide norms have loosened, that means individuals have taken on the burden of navigating their own boundaries. And that can be tough. As we approach the big holiday season, we'll talk about the pleasures and burdens of sharing ourselves in this age. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today we're going to talk about how we talk with each other, especially around difficult topics. The rules of etiquette in the past tried to make certain topics off limits, but there's been a long-term trend of loosening the social boundaries of acceptable conversation. This is good, I think, overall, but as each solution creates new problems, there's a need for some new guidelines for interpersonal communications. Context still matters, right? You can still be rude, There is still such a thing as too much information in today's world, at least at work, right, or among strangers. But what are the rules? To kick around these questions, we're joined by Michael Waters, a freelance journalist. Waters wrote a recent Atlantic article called The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. We're also joined by Thea Monier, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist and the founder of Marley IO, a creative wellness consulting company. Welcome back, Thea. Thank you. I'm happy to be back. And we're also joined by Lizzie Post, a great, great granddaughter of Emily Post. She's the co-author of Emily Post's Etiquette, the Centennial Edition, which came out earlier this fall, and she's the co-president of the Emily Post Institute in Vermont. Welcome, Lizzie. Thank you so much for having me. So, Michael, let's start with you. Uh, This article, The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries, kind of identifies this shift from a kind of cultural or social expectation around what might be talked about, what we called etiquette, to people making these more individual choices. Like, where did you see this kind of expressing itself, this change? Where did you identify this? Yeah, I think the first thing that caught my eye is essentially discussions on TikTok around this concept of trauma dumping, which is a bit of a nebulously defined term, but it essentially is talking about 
people um, sharing or potentially oversharing, you know, um, very like emotional or personal things to sort of friends or especially acquaintances, even strangers mm. who maybe aren't ready to hear it. And thank you for uh, defining that as a geriatric millennial. I had not heard the term before <laughs> the show. So thank you. And I think I think one thing that really caught my eye about this is, you know, sort of as you alluded to earlier, I think that we have this idea that um, we are in this period of like loosened social boundaries um, and loosening of etiquette norms. Um, and it's very interesting to see the just the, the like amount and volume of discussion on platforms like TikTok around um, trauma dumping and sort of around trying to create new sorts of boundaries in between how we share with each other and especially how we share with um, like share more emotional parts mm -hmm. of our lives. Um, and that got me sort of curious about essentially what it even means to be oversharing. Um, and that was kind of the genesis of this piece is, you know, we are we are definitely living through a time which is good for so many reasons where people are more comfortable sharing different aspects of their lives and their experiences. Um, and so it's fascinating that there is kind of this backlash brewing in some contexts. Um, and what I think is fascinating is that this idea of oversharing itself is so culturally and so sort of like specific to certain time periods. Hmm. Um, and so that was a, a lot of my original interest is yeah. what do we mean when we say oversharing today and sort of how has that changed over the last few centuries? Hmm. Uh, Thea, I wanted to ask you, I mean, as a therapist, isn't it feel like a good thing that people are more open with themselves, regardless of the reason? Do you see that as like fundamentally a good thing or are there are there issues with people opening up in these different contexts? I, I think you put it well when you said like, you know, as we find solutions, we find the challenges with certain things. And I think that's always going to be the case. Like there's never going to be, uh, it's always going to have a little gray to it. So yes, it's great that people feel more open and can share more with people around them. Absolutely. And also there's a piece there where it's like, not just for the person who would receive the information, but for yourself, checking in to make sure that they can hold you properly hmm. because sharing this information is very vulnerable, right? So if I share it and the person can't hold me and I didn't check to see if they could hold me, and I mean, hold me emotionally, just hold space for me, then there's this twofold collapsing that happens, right? Like I feel, oh my, I feel like embarrassed and I feel all these things that I even divulged, they feel overwhelmed because they weren't prepared for the information. And so I think that check-in is important or it's good to share, but it's also important to check in so that you can get what you actually wanted, which was you know, empathy or compassion. And you could also make sure that the person is prepared to offer that to you. So it's, it's like, there's still going to be response with, with more comes more responsibility, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we can do it more, but we also need to then have responsibility for how we do it. Yeah. It also just sounds like you, you kind of need to be prepared for reciprocity, right? Like you can't mm -hmm. just spring it on somebody and hope for reciprocity. You got to kind of <laughs> yeah, engage of that first. Yeah. Yeah, because the person does. Who wants to feel you know as a as a parent of three teenage daughters? <laughs> let me just say this topic. It's a little <laughs> close to home, and we're healing in real time. I often find myself, you know, sitting there like, I think what you want me to do is just take all this in and have zero <laughs> reaction to what you're telling me. And I don't know that I feel like that's fair. Like, I don't know if I feel like that's human. I don't know if that I feels like mm -hmm. we're in a relationship that makes me feel a little bit objectified. Like I'm just here as a prop for your life, as opposed to 
you know, a contributor. Mm -hmm. And so that's even how I have to have that conversation with my teenagers. Yeah. We're talking about this set of behaviors we sometimes call oversharing, TMI, trauma dumping in your personal and your work lives. We'd love to hear from you on this one. This feels like a talk show. Have you been on the receiving end of someone's oversharing? I mean, how did it make you feel? How'd you handle it? Or maybe you've been in the opposite situation. You have shared too much, you feel like, with a friend, a colleague, someone at the grocery store. You can give us a call. Uh, We can help you process it a little bit. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at KQED. Org. We're joined this morning by Michael Waters, who's a freelance journalist who wrote an Atlantic article called The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries. Therapist, forum therapist, the Amonier, uh, who's also the founder of uh, Marley IO, a creative wellness consulting company. And Lizzie Post, a great-great-granddaughter of Emily Post and the co-author of Emily's Post Etiquette, the Centennial Edition. Um, Lizzie, I wanted to come to you on this Sure. Do you? How do you see these changing behaviors? I mean, your great great grandmother is one of the sort of great creators of of etiquette. <laughs> how do you see the sort of changes in what's considered polite? Uh, is it good? Like, do you kind of like you know what? I'm glad that we have grown beyond <laughs> what my uh, great great grandmother might have thought was good conversation. I think it's really good. And I think Emily would think that it was really, really good, too. She actually was really, um, really made a concerted effort to always look to younger generations for what the upcoming etiquette for a society would or should or could be. And I always found that really inspirational. And I appreciate the fact that as the the business has then been handed down to each generation, I'm now the fifth generation managing it, um, that we've stuck true to that, that we really do want to be a finger on the pulse of American society, not a dictator of it. Hmm. And so as Americans have gotten more comfortable with talking about more subjects, you know, even just talk, talking about therapy in general is not a taboo anymore. And I feel like like even when I had first joined the Institute, people were still a little more hesitant to to like talk about their therapy experiences and things like that. I love the fact that things are more open, but with it, I think we have to be aware. Awareness is a huge part of etiquette, especially modern etiquette. And I love everything that Thea has been talking about in terms of check-ins with people. You know, it is now a good time. Do you have the space um, I, I could I could really use a listening ear or even there are times when when, as Theo was saying, we just want to vent, you know, we, do, we don't really want anything in return. And I think expressing that that's what we might need in a particular moment rather than just assuming the other person is able to take that on or that we have a right to just completely vent without any kind of um, mm any kind of awareness of how the other person is going to handle it. Um, I think it's really important that we're communicating about these things and trying to adjust the advice so that it's not taboo to talk about something, but instead that we're checking in and making sure it's the right time and place for both parties or all parties involved, depending on how, how big a group we're talking about. Yeah. You know, Thea, I, I wanted to pick up on something that Lizzie just said, which was, you know, that there's a kind of much greater awareness of mental health, uh, you know, kind of that both that people go to therapists, that people, you know, take various uh, medications, um, all these kinds of things. 
But do you think that that awareness of how to think about, talk about, and work with mental health has actually penetrated beyond just kind of like the labels for things? You know, I do. I think it's one of those things where wherever you go, there you are, right? So the the analogy I always use is like um, brain surgeons have their own language that they use, you know, in in, op, in surgeries. I don't even know the language for what they do. So there you go. Um, hairstylists too. Like the other day, my hairstylist, they were talking in like colors. And, and I was like, oh, this is fascinating, right? So every field has their language and that language is meant to be used within a certain context to communicate certain ideas. The same is true for mental health. You know, the terms that psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists are using to communicate within the field, you know, you know, years ago, about I would say at least, especially over the last decade, just spilled out into the world, right? Spilled out into social media, spilled out into, and so in an effort to destigmatize mental health, we kind of oversaturated the world with the terminology without the context. So people are now using these terms and these diagnoses that were really meant to be kind of used in the context of the field to mm -hmm. communicate amongst colleagues and to, to label themselves, to identify as these things, to identify other people as these things, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's become, it, it has become a bit of a mess. I, I have to say, you know, I'll, some of the work I have to do when people come in is to kind of run some of that back so that mm -hmm. they're not um, oversaturating. And to what Lizzie said, I do think there is a part where there's, they feel like they have a right to do that oversharing then. So like, mm -hmm. I, I, I must express myself because it's good for my mental health and, and people must mm -hmm. listen because I can't be silenced because, and that's different, you know, mm -hmm. that's a, that has to be kind of, definitely tampered with the awareness piece because it can be unhealthy for them yeah. and for other people. So there's always context that's yeah. important to apply. And sometimes just labeling something actually lets you think about it less or actually go less deep. Um, so that's that's very interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, we're talking about oversharing, trauma dumping, and TMI in personal and work life, these names we have for uh, how we share with each other. Joined by Thea Monier, licensed marriage and family therapist and the founder of Marley IO, creative wellness consulting company. Lizzie Post, a great-great-granddaughter of Emily Post, co-author of Emily Post Etiquette, co-president of the Emily Post Institute in Vermont. And Michael Waters, a journalist who wrote a recent Atlantic article, The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're going to the phones after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about what we call sometimes oversharing, trauma dumping, TMI in your personal and work life. 
maybe share too much. Uh, maybe you are shared upon. Uh, we're joined this morning by Lizzie Post, great-great-granddaughter of Emily Post, who's taken up the family business. She's co-president of the Emily Post Institute in Vermont. Thea Monier, licensed marriage and family therapist, and Michael Waters, a journalist who wrote a recent Atlantic article, The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries. And as promised, we're going on the phones. Karen in San Jose, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Um, I, I needed to call immediately because I'm aware that I am a chronic oversharer myself. Uh, I think I inherited this from my mom, who's the same way. Uh, thankfully, I've been able to find um, work environments where I have incredibly open and supportive colleagues. And so we've grown to become, I think, genuine friends who can talk about our life experiences in a way that feels psychologically safe. But I had to share that very recently I was in a conversation with a woman in my family, an older family member. I don't know her very well. And she started divulging to me details about some issues in her marriage. And it was this kind of uh, eye-opening moment for me of what it's like to be on the other side of Mm. hearing about somebody's trauma in a way that was uninvited. And it was... um, it was it was funny. It didn't make me terribly uncomfortable, but I thought I can understand 100% why this might make somebody else feel uncomfortable. So I was thankful for that moment of self-awareness. Yeah. I mean, just to, to define it more precisely, what do you think of when you think of, like, what oversharing means? Like, when you're like, I'm a chronic overshare, what, what does that mean to you? Okay, so for me, it's almost immediately jumping into things that have defined me from my childhood, from my past. It's, Uh, I grew up in a really religious home, and I often talk about religious trauma. I find it to be incredibly fascinating, and so it doesn't take long for me within discussions with new colleagues to start (laughs) divulging those details, whether or not they are aware that they're incoming. And so uh, things like that, yeah, they come up almost instantly because I'm just very curious. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for that, Karen. I appreciate that. Great, great lead-off call. Uh, Thea Monier, I, I want to ask, for people who find themselves in Karen's position, and they're like, well, these things define me, and I want you to know them right away. Um, what's the sort of, I don't know, it, advice or, or you know, <laughs> boundaries that you might want to establish? <laughs> like, how do you think about that? So, also, a recovering chronic overshare, right? <laughs> I would always be like, I'm, like, so shameless. Like, I, you just have to let me know because I'll be like, oh, yeah, I don't care. Take it all, you know? Um, so, I think, you know, for us, it can feel, like, very friendly and very, like, like adorable, like, very open. I had to be around some other friends who are a little bit more introverted to learn, like, that, you know, that's not something that emotionality or that even that perkiness sometimes people are not always <laughs> quite ready for. Um, so the what I've applied for myself is is that check-in that we Lizzie and I keep talking about is kind of like just I've had to slow down. So those of us who are overshares, we tend to be a little bit fast paced. We tend to like be a little bit more um anxious sometimes. We maybe we're recovering perfectionists. So we have a little bit of that in us. And so slowing down really helps me to be very present in the conversations so that I can be aware of what's happening. I can not, I can read the social cues. I can be available to, you know, a give and take. I can take breath in between sharing so that I can notice if they're you know joining in or if they're slowing down. And so looking at it as a dance, as a bit of a like relationship, even even each conversation is a relationship, is a dance. You've got to leave room for the partner, right? Mm. And so that's the way I've kind of slowed myself down. But I totally relate. <laughs> I totally relate <laughs> to Darren. Yeah. Let's uh, let's bring another car. Uh, Lisette in Oakland. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. 
Um, so I'm calling. It's, it's my sister. It's uh, my <laughs> best friend. <laughs> she. This is Nanu. This has been going on forever. She's an extreme oversharer through social media. Mm. Now, I live in California. She lives in New York. So social media is very important so we could i feel so we could feel connected so i could learn mm-hmm. what's going on in her life but the things that she shares have gotten me through emotional roller coasters and mm-hmm. also i've gotten into a lot of um back and forth and arguments not only with her but with people that have opinions about the things that she shares mm-hmm. she shares negative things she shared things about her life and then if anybody else, anybody comments on the things that she's sharing, personal, very personal things, then she goes on a rant about how people need to stay out of her business, mm. how this is her life. And I'm always so confused, and I feel that it's so selfish from her end to share these things, these strong opinions about social events and about her personal life and not expect people to react, especially people that love her. Mm-hmm. Lisa, and stay, I stay, don't know yeah. how to act. Yeah, stay, stay, stay with us uh, because I, I think we may end up coming back to on some of these things. Um, My, Michael Waters, I first want to ask you about the kind of like technological context for this, right? I mean, the way I think about this is social media kind of invites people to share with like an undefined audience, right? It's just sort of like, here's a box, put some feelings or emotions uh, because that will make people stay on our platform. Talk to me a little bit about how you see the those actual kind of technical features playing into you know people like Lisette's uh, best friend. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, to zoom out just really quickly, I think that one thing that I found in researching this is that we are really bad about sort of navigating how to share and what new kinds of sharing will look like whenever a new technology comes about. Hmm. I mean, it always brings this sort of like wave of like trying to understand how to use it correctly and and sort of how to like reinstall our own norms in this new technology. And one thing that I found especially fascinating in in researching this is that even when postcards were first invented um, in the mid to late 1800s, there was a backlash to to postcards and this idea that people were oversharing on postcards because essentially you'd gone from writing these usually very long, thoughtful letters to each other to just sort of dashing off, you know, sort of like whimsical thoughts and sending them to people. And there was this really real backlash, you know, in newspapers or op-eds talking about how, you know, postcards are going to give us too much of an insight into each other's lives. Oh my God. Uh, we're <laughs> oversharing in this way. And I do think just to give that as context of we all have to sort of like learn how to navigate around new technologies in terms of, you know, like, how can we be, how can we share an appropriate amount and sort of compartmentalize ourselves in these new technologies? And then also, um, how do we receive that properly? And I do think, especially on social media today, I I think that very much that that is impacting where we are now, where I think we are actually still trying to figure out the rules of what it means. Um, And one thing you're actually starting to see on social platforms, um, especially Instagram and Twitter, are these new features um, like Instagram close friends and Twitter circle, where even if you have a public account, you can sort of limit who sees certain posts. So, you know, you can have some things that you share um, that you just sort of project out to a general audience. Then you can have some things that you limit to a select group of people like your close friends on Instagram. 
And I think that's sort of where you're starting to see this beginnings of a new way to sort of like reestablish context and compartmentalization Mm -hmm. on social media today. Because without that, you know, something that you post, like whenever you post something on social media, you probably have in mind an intended audience of who's going to receive it. You know, you you have your, like your perfect reader of this post. Um, And very often it will either on TikTok, you know, spiral to completely different audiences, or even if it's on Facebook and these are all your friends, like someone who you imagine wouldn't be reading this Mm -hmm. um, might come across it. And so I think that is also part of of what we're dealing with right now is there's this kind of context collapse in terms of what we share and and who receives it. That's absolutely right. Um, Lisette, did you ever like go to your sister, your best friend and say, hey, like, you know, maybe you could deal with this differently or maybe you could send me an email or give me a call or did you you ever talk to her about this? Absolutely, I have. Um, It was the... For her wedding, um, she had a, a wedding gone wrong years ago, and she publicized everything on on Facebook. And then she was going into a deep anger, you know, and depression based on their people's responses to it. So Ooh. I, me being affected by her, um, the way she was dealing with things, I, I went up to, you know, I confronted her and I confronted her, I opened the conversation and I said, like, hey, look, you are creating this for yourself. Um, if you keep things, to, you know, and, and, and that ended up being a two year without talking to each other because yeah. she was very, um, yeah, she was very offended that I didn't approve to how she was um, managing her feelings. Um, and that was that was years ago. Now nowadays it's a little bit more direct. Every time I say something about anything that she posts, then there is a post about me saying something about what she posts. So even 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 mm. that it has it has become a very walking. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells when it comes to that. So I just I just realized that this is something that I. I wish she would block me. I wish she would get me out of her mm. fr- close friends. I um, I wish that I didn't care about how her life is going or mm. I-, I need to manage this. You know, um, I just don't pay attention to it anymore. I kind of yeah. ignore um, her posts from now on. But it has uh. been a it has been a conflict for, you know, especially because this is someone that I really love. If it yeah. was a stranger or just, you know. Yeah, you'd have hit him with the block a long time ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Unfollowed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lizzie Post, I, I have to say thanks so much for sharing um, all that, Lisette. I, I, I appreciate that. I think it just kind of puts some meat on the bones of what we're really talking about here and why these things really create real real problems for people. Um, Lizzie, I mean, your you know great-great-grandmother didn't have to deal with the <laughs> social media of the time kind of inviting these new types of, of conflicts, of course, families have had conflicts forever. I'm not trying to say that's not the case, but the the actual like texture of this is actually quite different. Absolutely. Um, I was even thinking as as the conversation's been unfolding about how, you know, prior to social media and because smartphones and and texting, like the evolution of texting and social media kind of all grew up at the same time, that prior to all of that, Email was one of the only ways you could kind of put out emotions like this on blast sort of to a number of people. Um, and boy, if you got an email like that, you knew someone was was really struggling or something or that mm-hmm. or that they were really wanting to connect with everybody over this. 
And I think we've gotten so used to the idea of just tossing it out there to everyone and tossing it out there to everyone. And, um, you know, whether from a mental health perspective or an etiquette perspective, it's worthwhile self-checking that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a hard thing. I think, um, the situation that our most recent caller has because of the, the, the harsh treatment that's coming back when there's any kind of suggestion, Mm -hmm that, hey, you know, just just as a heads up, this might not be coming across the way you think it's coming across, you know, mm-hmm. or this this might be uh, a little further than than you want to be going. I'm just trying to check in with you about that. And obviously, you don't, you know, you don't want to kind of assume someone's position or gaslight them. But I think it's really, um, it's really fascinating from an etiquette perspective, moving from mostly one-on-one conversations or at the most a large holiday table of family who get announcement or a conversation that starts or something to, as you had mentioned, Alexis, being able to put it out to a whole audience. Um, In some cases, people you don't even know. In other cases, more managed circles. And all of it for me from an etiquette standpoint comes back to constantly giving the advice to be willing to reevaluate ourselves, be willing to check in with ourselves, be willing to think about our impact on other people. And if you're in a position to do that, that's great. But when you're not in a position to do that, when you're when you're when you're thinking it's okay, but not getting the responses you want and you're reacting badly to that, I feel like that's a real breakdown of someone's connection with their community mm-hmm. and that that's a that's a hard thing to get to a place of being willing to reevaluate. I don't know if Thea can jump in and say anything yeah. about that too. I, I wanted I'm to like, add I'm one. Not a yeah. Therapist, yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. Like we're getting really into your territory here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I just wanted to say one quick thing and then Thea, we, we will bounce to you. I mean, sometimes with the social media stuff, I mean, I'm someone who's been on these things since their inception, and I probably have posted thousands of tweets and other things, <laughs> uh, not so much recently, but uh, in in the, you know past years. And the thing I always ask myself, and I think it's actually a pretty good rule, it's like, why am I posting this? Yeah. And I think if I'm posting it because I'm seeking connection, because I'm feeling weird, or I'm unhappy about something, like it's that thing where you're at the airport and you know something has made you mad, and then you just like blast the airport and all these other things and you're like did dallas fort worth really do that to you do you really need to be putting this out there like that right at this moment you know and i think if you can ask yourself why am i posting this it usually will solve the question of like should i post this but anyway that's i am also not a licensed therapist i'm just a talk show host so what do you think well, that, you know, that's great self-awareness that you're talking about, which we, the word awareness keeps coming up. And I have deep compassion for what the caller shared because that feels deeper than even what this conversation can hold. You know, there's one thing that came to mind is I think with that spillage of mental health language out into the world, like I was saying, out of context, what that made people think is that is that everyone's a therapist. And the reality is like, we go through training to be able to hold these kind of stories and conversations. And we have to hold them in a way that doesn't, um, that doesn't center ourselves, right? So we have to kind of create this blank safe space for people. And that is a hard thing to do. It is a very hard job. It is a very taxing job. It is not something that the everyday person is, it should be expected to hold. And I also think there's, going to Lizzie's point, there's, I think the other thing is this is happening in the context of a larger cultural 
mm. issue, which is, you know, our news does this. <laughs> like, I don't want to see all the things that my news puts out. I don't want it to be 24 hours. I would really just like to know, like, can I get an hour of news a day? But like, it's 24 hours. So like, you know, this happens all all the time on macro levels. It's not just like the micro interpersonal levels. And as people are grappling with the question that, so America didn't begin with like this very loving, you know, community. <laughs> and it like, and it like, it grew out of love, right? You know, it grew out of a fight over whose voice mattered and who, who was important and who, who was human. And that fight still exists. So I think when people, when we try to tell people, you know, not to share, sometimes what comes up for them is a feeling of being oppressed and a feeling of being silent. And if their trauma hasn't been worked out, then that's just reliving and re-triggering the trauma of being silenced, which could come from childhood. It could come from ancestors. It could come from all these places. So, I mean, wherever you go, there you are. We are the children of this of American society who are still like living out the turf war and the, the violence of who is valid, who is important, whose pain matters, right? Because we really historically have not grappled with that. At times mm -hmm. we have said certain people have a right to pain and a voice and certain people do not have a right to pain and a voice. Mm -hmm. So now we're in this space where social media makes it so everybody can have a space for that and it's cacophony. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I think it's, it's, a, it's a chaos that's necessary for the beautiful process of becoming mm -hmm. what we are going to become. And so we just have to hold it gently and with compassion and as much awareness as we possibly can. Yeah. Johnny writes in with a, with a fascinating perspective. Johnny writes, I've worked as a house painter and a carpenter for many years, and I've had many instances where I'm working in someone's home, and I am, more or less, held hostage listening to them talk about the darkest parts of their lives without my consent. I could be caulking a bathtub, and they're standing at the doorway just going off on one. I think there's something about performing a physical service like painting or carpentry that makes people really open up with you. That's a, that's a fascinating response to this conversation. We are talking about oversharing, trauma dumping, TMI, these ways that we're using to talk about how we share ourselves in this social media inflected age. Joined by Thea Monier, licensed marriage and family therapist and the founder of Marley IO, a creative wellness consulting company. Michael Waters, a journalist who wrote a recent Atlantic article called The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries. And Lizzie Post, who's the co-author of Emily Post's Etiquette, the centennial edition and the co-president of the Emily Post Institute in Vermont. Would love to hear from you. What's oversharing mean for you? 866-733-6786. We'll be more back with more calls right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about uh, this morning. Michael Waters, a freelance journalist with The Atlantic, wrote a story called The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries, which kind of inspired us to think about oversharing in this kind of social media inflected age and what it means to overshare. We're also joined by Thea Monier, licensed marriage and family therapist, and Lizzie Post, who's the co-president of the Emily Post Institute in Vermont, which, as you might expect, uh, does some things around etiquette. Um, we have some really interesting comments coming in from men. You know, before the break, we heard uh, Johnny the painter talking about people really opening up to him as he was caulking the bathtub. We also uh, have a comment from Jonas saying, I'd love to hear what you guys think about oversharing at a bar. We're not trained professionals uh, as bartenders, but we often have to hold space for people while we're working. However, I've had some amazing heartfelt conversations with people while working. Uh, while other people just sap all your attention and you have to learn how to set limits so that you can actually do your job. And here's a comment I really want to bounce off of, and I think um, they would probably going to come back to you on this. Matthew writes, As a man, I sometimes feel like society expects a certain amount of stoicism in how I carry myself. And so when I sometimes share what I think is a normal amount, the context clues I get are that I've overshared. Is there a sliding scale for oversharing? And I, I think what I want to expand out of this is, of course, there are gendered and mm-hmm. race components of both sides of, of, of sharing and being shared with, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really good. There's actually work being done. Um, I wish I could cite it properly right now, but there's a lot of good work being done. Uh, my husband does some work around like opening spaces for men to to talk and share. That is 100% accurate, I would say, in my experience. And even when I've done focus groups, I'll have like different groups, you know, there'll be some by race, some by, you know, sexuality, some by gender. And and it's interesting because I I never thought that the men's group would go so long. It mm-hmm. they take a while to get started, you know, but once they do, they don't want to end. And he my dad, my husband has a meeting he does with men on uh, Saturday mornings and they go for hours. Like I would be exhausted, but they go on and on and on. And it just indicates that there's, they don't feel like there's a lot of spaces where they can share. And I will even admit there's been times when like my husband will be sharing with me and there's in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, this is a lot. And I'm realizing it's not, I can sit on the phone with a female friend and she Mm -hmm. could be talking forever, but I'm just not used to receiving it from men. Mm -hmm. So it feels like, oh, this is, like society didn't really prepare us to hold that kind of space mm. emotionally for men. So I think that's a very valid, real thing that we have to check in on that. And there's, we see the consequences of that. We see the consequences of not holding emotional space or allowing men to take up emotional space yeah. in their loneliness, in their isolation and violence and all these different components. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this, there's another study that shows where, you know, around pu- puberty, you know, they, we stop touching them, right? We stop hugging them. We stop like, you know, there's all, there's all these rules that suddenly pop up for them, right? Like, you know, there's um, heteronormativity that impacts them. Mm-hmm. If they're, you know, there's um, there's homophobia. If they're, you know, hugging their friends, you know, there's all these different social things that are creating this like isolation chamber around them that for women, we don't have that. We're still allowed to, you know, hang on each other and touch mm-hmm. each other. So the next thing time they can do that is the military, you know, or, you know, sports teams. Yeah. They can they can touch. But touch is a thing that all people need, right? And so that is a very great point hmm. and hmm. a thing that we all need to look yeah. at. 
I've also read some research that uh, men are much more likely to share, be open and vulnerable with uh, women than with other men, actually, across um, across sexualities. Re- really interesting stuff. Um, John in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Yeah, fascinating show. Uh, I just uh, I just left a uh, a meeting with uh, thirty uh, people, men and women, and uh, the whole object of our meeting is to uh, bear our souls. Hmm. To uh, we have a saying, uh, I, I, maybe you've guessed by now, it's, it's AA, mm-hmm. and uh, our saying is uh, no more secrets. Mm-hmm. It's the secrets that kept us drunk, and that's how we heal. We heal by sitting in a room. Uh, and, and, and talking about things we would never talk about, you know, for instance, on a radio show. <laughs> I would never, ever talk to you about, you know, what mm-hmm. I talked uh, this morning about in our AA meeting. And uh, it works. It works uh, unbelievably well. Yeah. And, and uh, we, all, we, all, we often, uh, when we go out to uh, us men and have breakfast, we, we wonder, if, if the whole world couldn't benefit by the same things that we do, you know, sitting around talking about things that we would never talk about ordinarily. Yeah. Deep, dark secrets. You know, John, th- thank you for that. I, it's a it's a really good point. Great, great reminder how much support and, and is available in, in this world in you know group settings in, in particular. And, you know, yeah, I guess I wanted to, to bounce this to you, which is like the, one of the things I take from John's comment is in the right context, this stuff works really well like that that sharing when there is this kind of reciprocity built into a group like this and that that this can be really healthy for people absolutely i think what we can pull from his point is that if we consciously and intentionally create more spaces for people to share in a compassionate safe non-judgmental way which is what therapy is meant to offer. But, you know, therapy is only needed because if that, that became something that we lacked in community, right? That became something that we couldn't do in community. So we created a profession to do it, right? Mm-hmm. But it would be nice if that could go back to being in community and that we could create consciously intentional spaces for compassion and non-judgment that might be the cure to oversharing. Because mm-hmm. if I know I have a space that I can go every week and do this, then I'm less likely to, you know, accost the person at the grocery store. Right. But but by the time I'm accosting the person at the grocery store, it's it's you know, it's the term is trauma dumping, but it's really a spilling over. Right. Like it's mm-hmm. a it's a I've, I'm at capacity and this thing is just kind of pouring out of me. But I love the idea. And that's a great model. That's a perfect example. And we should have that outside of um, crises. Right. Mm-hmm. It just shouldn't require crises for us to have that. Yeah, kind just of like thing. John was saying, the, the mm-hmm. whole world could benefit from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Alicia in Oakland. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alexis. Love the show. Love you. You're awesome. Um, I, you know, I, this is a really fascinating uh, subject to me. It's something that I've looked at a lot. Um, I think that, um, you know, social media has definitely expanded the the capacity, you know, people to reach more people. And and the comment that I'd wanted to make that I feel like people are kind of touching on and getting at is that where, where this spills over into kind of toxicity and unhealth um, is when, you know, people are trauma dumping or what I might call drama dumping. In a way, it's, a, it, it's like attention-seeking behavior. It's kind of an, an, a form of emotional vampirism. But I don't say that to be, like, critical or mean because I think it's super important to hold compassion that people that are doing that are not conscious they're doing it. 
it's uh, they're actually attempting to heal mm-hmm. from trauma but they don't know how and have healthy tools for doing it so they're seeking energy um, from others in the telling of their tale right they're seeking that sympathy that sympathetic response um, and by unloading all this information on someone with no warning um, so that they'll get that that kind of sympathy and and I think it's there's a skill and it's something it'd be good for everybody to learn how to do of you know on the one hand like many of your speakers have said, holding compassion for that this is a person who's in suffering. That's why they're behaving this way. But on the other hand, protecting yourself by not taking on, right, there because, you know, after a bunch of unloading and giving somebody a ton of sympathy where it's not reciprocated, mm-hmm. right, that's part of what makes it a, a mm-hmm. kind of a vampiric thing is the person's unloading, but they're not reciprocating. Yeah. They're not receiving anything from the other person. So there's a way to kind of kind of take it in without taking it on is kind of what I was trained yeah. how to kind of think of it. But, you know, you're still understand you're not lashing out or getting angry at this person because that doesn't help anything. They're not conscious of what they're doing, but you do protect yourself yeah. by not, you know, overgiving of your own in your own response to to their neediness <laughs> because right, none of right. those things are going to heal anybody. Right. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. That's a that's a great perspective. I mean, I thought I, I kind of want to take this to to Lizzie Post because when you're taking that in, you do usually eventually need to like sort of set the boundary or to to reset the way uh, a conversation is going or a relationship is going. In the kind of newish flexible etiquette rules you've been <laughs> thinking about. Is, are there kind of strategies you might have for someone who feels like they're caught in one of these types of um, situations that are that are fundamentally unbalanced? I think for the for the person receiving it, it's really hard because, as you know, our caller and and some other folks have said today, we're trying really hard to recognize that someone's struggling right now, you know, and whether you're aware of it being a temporary struggle or this is just their mo. They're having a moment and they're coming to you. And a lot of humans want to be compassionate about that, want to give some space. You know, uh, we we like the idea often of being there for people. We, we hope people are going to be there for us and we want to give that to them. But you do have to find polite ways of setting boundaries. And I think we've had one caller today who tried to set a boundary or tried to approach a boundary and got cut off for two years. So it can feel really dangerous to do it. And we have to remember that we can only control control our own actions, not the actions and reactions of other people. But when we're thinking about that, I think I'm I'm totally reminded of my mother, like when I would have some breakup drama or something going on, and I'd be crying about it for days. And she'd listen. But at a certain point in the conversation, she would also say, now, what are we going to do about your tennis match this weekend? Or how are you getting to the this thing? Like, it was a redirection of things. And when I'm dealing with this, at least with friends or or my own family, when I hit the point in the conversation where I'm like, okay, either we're going in circles, or this is getting too intense for me. It's where I try to be able to break in, say something validating and and recognizing of the situation that they're in, but also say, I've got to, you know, I, I want to be here for you right now. I have to start getting the kids ready for bed, or I've got to start prepping dinner. So I've got to turn my attention and my focus. 
if you can, then add on something about we could pick this up again, or how about I check in with you tomorrow morning to see how you're doing, something like that. But I think being able to redirect the moment is something that we should take some confidence in doing. And I do think that when you can do that in a in a gentle and friendly and polite way, as opposed to, okay, that's it. I've heard enough. I got to go. I've got other things to do. You're not the most important thing in my life. The difference between those two is pretty big. Yeah. You know, right. I've got right. some things I have to take care of. I could check in with you later if that would be helpful. Um, but when we're in that spiral and, and Theo, please jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. I know that I'm seeking some kind of um, connection, some kind of understanding because my own mental state feels out of whack. It feels like too much. There are too many thoughts racing too, uh, too, you know, uh, too quickly around my head. And I'm, I'm looking for a release, a relief, a something, and I'm turning to other people. I know for myself, I was in therapy for 15 years um, until both my therapists retired like, within five <laughs> years like, of each other. Mm. And that space that Thea's talked about creating as a therapist is amazing. It gave me the ability to know that once a week I could go there and talk about all these things. I didn't have to talk about them with every relationship that I had at work. And I loved my, in Michael's um, article, uh, you bring up the fact that some conversations are going to be appropriate for the best friends, some for the parents, some for the the boss, you know, but you're not going to tell the same story to every yeah. person. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think that's really worth recognizing. I also think we should all just have free, not free therapy, but like therapy for everybody. Therapy like when for you're all. born, yeah. you get access to a therapist, <laughs> guaranteed. It'd be amazing to see what that could change, change our nation if we did. Um, let's, let's grab one more call and then we'll come back to Thea. Uh, I'll Alejandro in Oakland. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for this great topic and conversation. Uh, my name is Alejandro, and I'm a transgender man that provides support to trans and trans questioning people. Mm. I'd like to ask the show's guests to please speak on the need to be witnessed without assumption or judgment, especially because so many of us that are trans live in social isolation and starved for authentic community mm. and sharing is a lifeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, t- tell me more about what you're thinking, Alejandro. Oh, yo, um, yeah. So what I'm thinking specifically is, you know, I know we've heard about the need for boundaries um, to not overshare, um, but you know, for those folks who need to share something that they've never ever gotten a chance to share before, um, you know, that how to help them cultivate an ability to mm-hmm. share and feel safe about it. Um, while also trying to um, formulate boundaries, right? Because so many of us that are trans, we don't get a chance to self-determine or um, express ourselves authentically. And then when we start to have those opportunities, like I have, you know, just trying to navigate how much is too much and with who and where it's safe to do so. Yeah, and it also sounds like, and and Thea, I'm going to take this to you, it, it sounds like, the importance of sharing with peers, right? People who can can actually yes. understand and and hold that experience in a way that is is authentic to who they are. Thea, can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of that? Absolutely. Um, so I want to just call in the idea that, like, in all of these interactions, what is universal is centering love. And I think sometimes we will say, you know, I want to be there for the person. And I want to take care of the person. And 
part of that is knowing your own capacity to hold these beautiful or vulnerable parts of that person in a loving way. And it's okay to say if you have that skill set or you do not, because that is also love. What we don't, we don't want people to give us, you know, their heart or these parts of themselves when they're at their most vulnerable. And then we, we're clumsy with it and not, not intentionally, but because we didn't take a moment to just be honest about what we, the skill set we had. And that, that is a level of vulnerability as well. Speaking to Alejandro's point, um, I worked in a, a, a gender and sexuality center for several years, and um, I, I worked with clients who were in transition. Um, and so I, that space, you know, I felt honored to hold as a therapist because I knew the limit, limited amount of spaces that my clients had to share their experiences. Um, I also felt very protective of those clients, to be honest, because I knew there were limited spaces where they could have those experiences. Um, and so this is what we mean about cultivating intentional, conscious, compassionate spaces where the needs of different communities are different and they're varied. Um, and at a bare minimum, if you don't feel like you have the skill set to meet that, then you witness, you know, it's it's nothing. One of the easiest things you could say is, I see you. I hear you, and this is all completely valid, right? I see you, I hear you, and this is all completely valid. And then you say, and I don't necessarily have the full skill set, but I know that much. I know that I know those things to be true. Um, in terms of Alejandro and people who are in the margins and who are in the shadows of our society, I think it is very important that you tell your story. And I also think it's important that you know you're so valuable that not everybody deserves your story. So make sure that person is worthy of holding that story. That's great. And um, last comment Priya writes in to say, all of us are so lonely and don't have a feeling of belonging anymore. Thus, people are in a constant state of being overwhelmed and spray and pray posts are really a symptom of not having a deep connection to any body, purpose or place. Sadly, this is the time for people to move inward, not outward. We've been talking about oversharing and how to handle the new rules, but when and how to share our lives with the people around us. We've been joined by Michael Waters, a journalist who wrote the recent Atlantic article, The Decline of Etiquette and the Rise of Boundaries, which inspired the show. Thea Monier, licensed marriage and family therapist, and Lizzie Post, who is the co-author of Emily Post's Etiquette, the Centennial Edition. This Hour of Forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, Jennifer Ng, Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer, Judy Campbell's lead producer, our engineers, Danny Bringer, interns are Paul C. Kelly Campos and Lulu Ralda, Susan Davis, the senior producer, VP of News is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thank you so much to everyone who shared your stories with us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another Hour Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.